Hello. Welcome to my art form. It's time for post-orthodoxy, a show about changing our minds. Yeah, baby. With your host, Dark and Ainsley Sevier. Maybe what they believe about reality isn't all of reality. What? I know, right? We are on a mission to have a better time with more people more often. The question is more how do you get there? Post-orthodoxy explores strongly held beliefs, how those belief systems divide or connect people, and what might be found beyond those reality bubbles. Keep calm. Don't lose your head. I've got a piece of chocolate here with me because I got anxiety about doing this. Welcome to this neighborhood, neighbor, neighbor, neighbor. We're back. Abruptly Abrupt here. Abrupt ending. I Welcome swi- <laughs> to show. <laughs> I switched to a camera. <laughs> oh, I got to unmute voice. Here we go. <laughs> Ask to unmute. Hello, and welcome to the show. Ta-da. Hello, Mark. Hello, Ainsley. Hello, Boyce. Everybody that doesn't know Boyce, this is uh, Boyce Brown. He was here last Sunday on our show. We started talking about a number of things. We were talking about harm reduction in um, uh, drug, drug um, D criminalization at the end among other things we're yes. talking about psychedelic drugs quite a bit it's true and and it was kind of like this is great let's start talking about what's going on in the ukraine and then the internet just would not go anymore causation correlation very choppy yeah. it, it's true so i thought we would just jump right to boys today rather than jumping to the part where we get to actually hear the rest of our intro so that was my bad Oh, that's the way it goes. Yeah, that was my bad. Sorry, this guys. Is, this is live television. <laughs> well, you're you're a co-host and the P, okay. Ainsley. Yes, that's true. Co-host and producer. So uh, I've been reading some of the things you sent to me. Yeah. Um, and the Ukraine is not a new subject for Boyce Brown. No. Yeah, I forgot that I even wrote something about it after the Maidan revolution for Truth App. Which was two. 2014 was when he wrote that article. Right. Boyce was the one that encouraged me to go uh, move Ukraine on fire up my viewing list. Um, Yes. Which I did. I saw it's Oliver Stone is associated with that production. He's uh, doing some of the interviews. Oliver Stone interviewing Vladimir Putin. Um, Obviously, he hates our country. Uh, Oliver Stone? Yeah, Oliver Stone. Yeah. Um, Yeah. but he I, asked Putin if Putin had seen Dr. Strangelove, and Putin said no. So I'd love to be a fly on the wall for that screening. Oh, boy. And then after watching, you know, I, I try to, 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 to take in a, a, a number of perspectives on a subject bef- while I'm trying to form my perspective on a subject. So Ukraine on Fire was a 2016 film. So this is two years after you wrote your piece, 2014. Somewhere in between those two, there was another documentary produced called uh, Winter on Fire. I don't know if you've seen that. I refuse. You refuse to see it. (laughs) I want myself to be indoctrinated according to my preconceptions. Ah. Oh, no, voice. Yeah. Confirmation bias. Reign supreme in my mind. (laughs) So I I wish I had seen... I I need to watch them both again because... um, Ukraine on fire, I feel like, is uh, an interesting geopolitical, larger zoom-out story and historical context 
of what was happening in the Ukraine leading up to the Maidan uh, revolution. Right. Um, brought in World War One or World War Two and the Nazi collaboration of Stefan Bandera, which re- reverberates today mm. and even further back to the Russian Empire and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So Winter on Fire is a doc- Ukraine. Uh-oh, cutting out. There you go. Here, so I'm just going to establish a policy. We don't need to say it every time. Okay. Because we'll I just- don't know if he knows, but yes. Yeah, I see me freezing too. Okay, yeah. good. We'll just we'll just reiterate or re-ask a question if we have to. Right. Surf through the turbulent waves. That's right. So Winter on Fire is a perspective on that story told from the point of view of the revolutionaries, of the people who were on the ground, the Ukraine citizens, who right. felt like their president was not, their democratically elected president was not um, acting on their behalf. So they... They ousted him, basically, in that revolution. Ukraine on Fire adds context to that ousting, uh, talking about how the U.S. State Department and NATO have been uh, involved in fuckery in Ukraine for a long time and might have had something to do with uh, fomenting revolution uh, so that the democratically elected president was replaced by somebody more friendly to the U.S. State Department. As per Valerie Newland's instructions, which were caught on a telephone call tape. Right, which you mentioned back in 2014. That was also in the uh, Ukraine and Fire documentary. So it sounds like what you guys are saying is that um, even though most people I know have only recently become aware that there's shit going on in the Ukraine, yeah, um, it's actually been going on for like eight years and there's a lot of evidence that points to the U.S. messing with Ukraine's government. Well, we have official policy messing with that government. Yeah. 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 You guys have been debating where fuckery came from. Can I offer a candidate? Yeah, please. You guys know the Canadian sitcom Trailer Park Boys? No. Yeah, sure. Of the, one of Canada's best comedies. Yes. And there's that character with the coat and glasses called Bubbles. Bubbles. Yes. He says, he's got these big glasses. He says, there's fuckery afoot. <laughs> so it might have come from Bubbles. I think it came from Bubbles. But yeah, there's been fuckery afoot for a long time. And uh, even the American intelligence community admits that they use cutouts like the National Endowment for Democracy to do what they used to do through covert operations through the CIA. So. Right. What's a cutout? Um, and it's like a paper. It's like a. It's a front it's for a front. the CIA. Gotcha. Yeah. And another front is George Soros's Open Society. And right. the powers that be utilize these fronts, these cutouts, to engage in their fuckery to do what they used to do just by raw CIA power. And that was certainly uh, Ukraine on Fire's thesis. But, you know, to give Winter on Fire some credit, there is a substantial part of Ukraine that does want closer ties to the EU. And for goodness sakes, their uh, national per capita income is about 3,400 USD. Well, that was in 2014. Is that staying steady that way? Uh, I haven't seen the latest figures, but I'm... Well, what I looked at when I was looking at yeah, 
Yeah, but I was looking at uh, what uh, Zelensky is getting paid as president. They said basically equivalent to uh, less than $1,000 a month as president of Ukraine. That's yeah. his salary. So obviously, if the president is under $1,000 a month, it's probably not that good for the rest of the population. Maybe that's like a teacher's salary or something. Hmm. So, or maybe double the teacher's salary. He is the president after all. You would think. So I have a question, a side question, something Dark's been pondering this week. Why do we say in the Ukraine? <laughs> I say, I find myself, I don't say in the France or in the Germany, but I do say in the Ukraine for some reason. But you should. Why do I, why, why should I? The French say le France. Ah. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I've wondered that too. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I found myself, like, I don't call any other country the whatever, but I do it. I feel myself doing it with, with Ukraine for some reason that I don't understand. So I didn't I do know. Too. And because I went to, uh, I was an exchange student in Serbia in my first semester of my junior year in high school. I am an honorary Slav. All right. And therefore I have an enhanced understanding of the geopolitical, uh, by a, this honorary citizenship to also say the Ukraine. Uh, I posted in the comments, this is some of the research that I've been doing this week. Uh, it's a bit shoot video. Oh, no. <laughs> it's a bit shoot video. People are going to think things about Alternative us now. media. Uh, it's, yeah, called the, it's called <laughs> Ukraine Roundtable, False Flag, PsyOps, and Propaganda, What You're Not Being Told About Ukraine. And uh, three journalists being interviewed by this cat. Um, uh, the name of the podcast is The Last American Vagabond. That's a cool and I'm not sure name. what the guy's name is. He doesn't have it in the title. But Last I, American Vagabond. That might be uh, that woman at Mint News. That's a dude. Whitney, Whitney Webb? No, it's like a dude who's got like a salt and pepper goatee and he's bald, but he doesn't mm. look like me. Uh, um. But that was a really interesting, it's like, uh, uh, three journalists, uh, people who have had long time, people who have been there when things are happening, people who have worked with the U.S. government and been a journalist and worked with uh, Ukrainian policy and U.S. policy for decades. So these are people who have some skin in the game uh, talking about maybe why this all came about. That's really kind of the first question I want to ask you. In, in, you don't think he looks like you? No. It's <laughs> better looking than I am. Um, uh, I wanted to ask you this question because I, I think what got me interested in the story was the sudden inundation of everything Ukraine and the the blue and yellow flag and everybody putting it on their page. And I was a little shocked because I was like, I didn't see them do this for Syria or Yemen or Libya. Palestine or Libya. Jesus, I didn't Although, see any of that. To be fair, Rwanda. To be fair, right. a lot of our leftist friends, there is usually a wave of people that are like, what can we do to help the refugees? You know? Like, sure. I, I was I was shocked at, like, the inundation. Suddenly it was just everywhere suddenly. Yes. And this then, is a much bigger pop than most of the time when I hear about somebody wanting to do a fundraiser for refugees. And I was um, also interested in the rhetoric that immediately came out because it felt so similar to the coronavirus narrative rhetoric which is, I'm asking, what is going on in the Ukraine? Why is Russia 
doing what Russia is doing? Why do we care about it differently than we do these other countries where we have been invading and killing the population? Right, why, 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 why this? Why different? It's bad that Russia's invading and killing people in the Ukraine. But it's not but bad, it's not that, bad we, that we invaded and killed people in some other country. Or Israel in Palestine. Like So I, just, I, I was asking those questions, and I got the immediate slap back, almost like COVID, which is like, well, if you're not getting the vaccine, then you don't care about grandma's. Same thing here. If you if you're not talking about the poor people of the Ukraine, then you love Vladimir Putin. Suddenly, like like, like that's not what I was. I, right. I, I'm I'm just Whoa. nobody does anything does these that you don't invade a country for no reason. What do they say? The Holy, U.S. does not invade a country for no reason. Holy false equivalency, Batman. Holy cow! So like suddenly, nobody was having any conversation about what motivations might be behind. Putin and Russia going into Ukraine. And then, you know, and then there's been all this confusing talk around uh, Nazis and, well, the president is Jewish, so obviously it's everything not really good. Nazi or, you no, know, if the it president's was Jewish, then completely crazy. Good. So um, maybe you can help me understand. I've done some research, but I'd like to hear what, what, you, what you found on this. What motivation is there? Why did Russia invade Ukraine? The Ukraine. Why? Why did that? What motivations do you did you sniff out? Well, we could look at its the fact that it was invaded by Napoleon. It lost half of its country in World War II. It's the United States invaded it after the Soviet Union was created. In 1920, American troops were on Soviet soil. It's always been very, it has been warning the West for 20 years and Soviet and Western diplomats and academics have been saying this is a legitimate security concern, a core security concern of Russia. The current CIA director was a former ambassador to Russia and WikiLeaks released a Niet means Niet cable that he sent code red to everybody in the national security state saying, if we keep fucking with Ukraine, eventually Russia's going to respond with military force. So I think all of these reasons, which are laid out, all make sense as to why Russia did it. But why did that switch occur from the pandemic to Russia? We've seen the memes of the, the coronavirus saying goodbye, walking out the door. And the, the missile coming in, hello, war in Ukraine. <laughs> yep. Or that one with that droid, that angry-looking man, a meme guy. And he's, I'm mad at corona. Pull out a chip, coronavirus chip, put in a Ukraine chip. I'm mad at Ukraine. <laughs> it's, it's media programming. And one of the best sources of information that I've been utilizing to understand the Russia-Ukraine war is former UN weapons inspector in Iraq, Scott Ritter. Scott Ritter was a former Marine, and when he left the armed services, he was tasked to create an intelligence service for the United Nations and to see if Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. And he did that, and he was in country, and to prove his bona fides, he 
Well, to, he had to prove his bona fides to CNN. And he was taken into a star chamber of CNN with 30 talking heads. And they grilled him again and again and again for hours on end. He eventually said, well, well, Ritter, it looks like you passed the test. And then they thought he was going to be one of them, one of their talking heads. And they, they told him, OK, we've already got these talking heads from intelligence and the military and uh, the war is already, it's on anyway. And Ritter was, whoa, 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 I'm still in country. We're still looking. Mm-hmm. And then Bush said, uh, we, we, but Saddam didn't let in the inspectulatory people. And then they went to war. So the media works in tandem with the merchants of death. As you noticed, uh, CNN brought to you by Pfizer and all of the big pharma money that was soaking through big media, so too does the the merchants of death uh, advertise on big media, but also are co-owned by the same hedge funds that own big media. So they all have a – there's a congruence of interests between big media, the government, the military-industrial complex, big pharma, and I could go on and on. So I think it is something as raw as war creates good ratings because after Trump left, the Blue MAGA legacy media ratings cratered, and they were at a fraction of what they were. And then with the Ukraine, they restored their ratings back to what they were uh, previous, and they didn't have to stop relying on all January 6th all the time. Mm. So Trump was the war for four years. And, um, right. and so because the news has always been talking about war before Trump, and then he didn't start one, so he was the war. And then now that he's gone, there has to be another thing to keep people glued to their television about, I suppose, is one of the motivating factors. I would say it's as abject and raw and crass as money. I but think it's really when- hard for people to accept. It's very hard for a lot of um, citizens, the average citizen, to accept something like that because they would never blow up people and their dogs for money. So for us to sit here and say, well, there are reasons why Russia went to war with Ukraine and those reasons have a lot to do with global governmental fuckery for money. It sort of, I think it breaks people to think that they can't trust what's going on and that they can't, that they have to look at people suffering and believe that someone out there made the decision to cause suffering just to have money. You know, like we can talk about it and be cool. Yeah, I think a lot concept, of people, but go ahead. I think a lot of people would argue that's so reductionist. How could you, say something like that it can't be possible but it is mark french says ukraine just made their interest payments to the world bank and imf and other western banking interest bearing accounts Mm. is that something that we have like public record of of like who pays off stuff so the ukraine just got a bunch of money from this war effort and is paying off debts to the world bank is that something that's going on well we could start getting into the ramifications of Wait, the ramifications of? International finance. Ah, yeah. Uh, I wanted Mark French to join in this conversation because, as he said, that's his jam. Finance and uh, stuff. International finance, uh, system collapse, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, general uh, mega fuckery uh, that, that we're all laboring under. Uh, 
I think it's hard for people to get their head wrapped around. This is a thing that we've talked about on the show before. I think it's hard for people to get their head wrapped around because most people are kind, loving, caring people. I think it's hard for those people to get their head wrapped around activities that are being engineered by people who are not kind, loving, caring people because it's really painful to imagine that that's happening in the world. The people that are, are that crass and profit-motivated that uh, collateral damage is a city. Um, we can just waste this city because, uh, you know, the bottom dollar says blah, 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 and moving people's perspectives. There was a, a, my original understanding of the term woke, when the term woke came about, my understanding of the term was people who were aware that the, um, there was a, a, a problem with general media manipulation by corporations manipulating messages. So if you were woke, that meant you knew that democracy is a sham, that your vote doesn't really count on a national level, um, that uh, the news that you're getting is not news, but formulated, uh, what do you call it, engineering consent of the population so that the corporations can do whatever the fuck they want after they've manipulated you into being in in compliance with whatever their mission is. That's what woke was to me. People who sort of saw behind the veil and somehow it morphed into like sexual identity police. Um, So I don't know what the new woke is or what you call people because I think I was hoping, you know, I, I am an optimistic person during the coronavirus narrative. There was, especially with the censorship that more and more people would be, hey, wait a minute, censorship never actually works out very well for the people who, you know, for the societies in which it takes place. Maybe more people would start paying attention to what is getting censored, who is doing the censoring, and how do we know what we're not seeing anymore? And you can't call yourself woke for doing that anymore, so I don't know who the people are that are aware of this manipulation. I'm hoping it's more than there were, but I got a little disheartened. With this, um, I care about people. I care about the Ukrainian people. This weird, uh, like, suddenly everybody virtue signaling with the Ukrainian flag, knowing nothing about the relationships between the United States, Ukraine, and Russia, and and NATO, and Europe, not knowing nothing about it, and then just supporting the people. I appreciate that you care about the people, but I think it's also important to actually care about what happened. How did we get there? That got us there in order to maybe keep it from happening again. As long as we keep supporting the latest tragedy, there will continue to be more tragedies because we're not stopping the next tragedy when we're just being emotionally manipulated into caring about the current tragedy. I had this conversation with a friend of mine online this week um, that I see so many well-meaning and caring people jumping into the triage People are literally flying to Ukraine to join the military or to drop off supplies in person. They're raising money. They're sending money. They're booking Airbnbs but not staying in them so that the host has money to live in their own damn house. Like, people are jumping into triage 
and that's wonderful. And what I was trying to explain to this friend is like, there are millions of people on the planet. We don't all need to be doing triage. And if we all are only doing triage, then nobody is in the lab trying to figure out preventative measures so that something like this doesn't happen again. So I would say it takes a village. And what we're here for on post-orthodoxy is to try to figure out how to keep stuff like this happening again in the future. How do we all get along better, have more compassion, have more critical thinking, have a better way of choosing our own media and our own thoughts so that we don't get roped into yet another thing in the future. Okay. I'm a published historian. So let me take it back to the post-World War II world order that the United States engineered. One of the architects of the Cold War was a fellow named George Keenan, and he wrote a very famous document in 1948 called Memo PPS 23. It's so important. Please indulge me in reading uh, about a 60 seconds of it. Sure. He says that 50% of the world's, that the United States after World War II had 50% of the world's wealth, but only 10% of its population. And this memo was going out to all of the architects and sub-architects of the Cold War. This disparity is particularly great as between ourselves and the peoples of Asia. In this situation, we cannot fail to be the object of envy and resentment. Our real task is the coming period of, of relationships which will permit us to maintain this position of disparity without positive detriment to our national security. To do so, we will have to dispense with all sentimentality and daydreaming, and our attention will have to be concentrated everywhere on our immediate national objectives. We need not deceive ourselves that we can afford today the luxury of altruism and how did America try to maintain this disparity by creating and maintaining control over key international multilateral organizations like the United Nations, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, by setting up the what's called the Breton Woods Monetary System. It was a conference in Breton Woods, Vermont in 1948 that uh, made the dollar as the international currency of reserve Co, a co-currency of reserve with the pound until the Suez Canal in, uh, crisis of 1951, I believe, perhaps 1956, definitively ended the, the, the pound's role as an international currency of reserve. Flash forward to uh, 1973, for that period from World War II to 1971, the dollar had been backed by gold. But Nixon took us off of the gold standard. What did he replace it with? The petrodollar. Mm. The oil market is a multi-trillion dollar uh, a year trade. What is it now? It's about denominated 80% in U.S. dollars. So even after the dollar went off of the gold standard in 71, maybe 73, it was still the petrodollar. And America was still a net creditor nation with with Ronald Reagan and all that military spending, <laughs> we started becoming a, a net debtor nation in 1983. And of course, in those decades, you'd had the, a bipolar world of the, the United States 
and NATO versus the Warsaw Pact and these proxy wars across the country. A lot in Africa, Cuba, Cuban Missile Crisis, mm-hmm. very obvious one. So across um, the globe. Uh, across the globe. Yeah. And to circle back to the last American vagabond and bit shoot, uh, I would recommend very highly that any of your audience members read William Bloom's book, Killing Hope. Mm. It itemized about 50 covert operations and invasions that America engaged in all around the globe during this bipolar moment, which lasted until the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991-ish. And then... You have historians like Francis Fukuyama saying it is the end of history. Fukuyama had this incredible thesis and book that Western liberal small L democracy and free markets have won. We are at the end of history. It is not just a unipolar moment, but now every we, we have the whole of history itself in the American model as the model and gatekeeper. And this was a unipolar moment for America. And you have neoconservatives like Paul Wolfowitz, who delivered the defense planning guidance in 1992, which said America should be a rampaging superpower. And it was too raw, even for George H.W. Bush. Dart, do you recall what George H.W. Bush said was going to happen after Gulf War 1.0? No, tell me, tell me, remind me. We're going to have it in our brother, uh, Bill Hicks. Uh, The New World Order? Yes. That's what George H.W. Bush said in 1992 after Gulf War 1.0. That's funny um, because Biden just said that like a couple of weeks ago. Biden just said, yeah, you're going there. Okay. I'm going to go hurtling right towards Biden's. Okay. But first, let's look at the defense planning documents that really stressed America's to that America should seize this unipolar moment. No, first of all, I think we have to look at how on YouTube they've pulled up an involuntary mandatory Wikipedia article. When I try to look up for Bill Hicks quote about the new world order, YouTube has put up a Wikipedia article. I did not ask for letting me know that the new world order is a conspiracy theory, which hypothesizes, (laughs) which hypothesizes a secretly emerging totalitarian world government. And um, I would say it's right. only right. secretly emerging in so much as you're too busy to have read about it. It's not secret it's anymore. Not secret. The World Economic Forum is not a secret. <laughs> and uh, Crystal Ball and uh, Sagar and Jetty were about two years. And then they broke away and now they're breaking points. And they're awesome. And Rising was completely floundering for a while until they found Kim Iverson. Ah. And she's great. Hawaiian and, girl, right? Uh, is she? Awesome. I think she's Hapa, Hapa Hawaiian. She, yeah. She's definitely Hapa Vietnamese Haole. Yeah. But, uh, she just did a piece on the New World Order for, for Rising now, a couple weeks ago, because of Biden's comment. And it has that same uh, w- warning, Ainsley, <laughs> that, oh, Kim Iverson's talking about this conspiracy theory. That the president of the United States had mentioned. The president of the United States mentioned that conspiracy he said, theory. He, well, he didn't say it was a conspiracy theory. He said, we're heading towards a we're new doing, world order. We're, we're doing, doing a new yeah. world order. Yeah, We're doing that thing. The exact phrase George H.W. Bush used 30 years ago. So-called conspiracy new world order now touted by China, Russia, Biden, and Klaus Schwab from Kim Iverson of Rising. Right. So what... 
when uh, Obama went through his Rolodex and made a few calls and Biden was selected as the new president, what was the thing that and then the big media jumped right on behind him? And what were we promised? We were not going to have to endure this cascade of a cascading fountain of crazy tweets. Ah. And now the adults were in the room and everything would be dispensed with cool, dispassionate rhetoric. And now they have to soup Biden up with a, a leader of Adderall to go out and make a speech. It's true. It's so true. I know so many people who said, don't worry, we'll hold Biden just as accountable as we hold, <laughs> as I held President Trump. I will check everything he says, just like I checked everything Trump said. And I said, no, you won't. Yep. Yeah, and we're going to push it to the left. Because right. you want you want a president that looks like what you think a president should look like and talks like what you think a president should talk like, and and he looks like what you wish your grandpa looked like, and so you're going to feel safe and you're going to stop holding them accountable. But instead, I mean, I think he's a uniquely horrible human being and uh, is integrally responsible for all of the worst legislation of Biden. The latter half of the 20th century, absolutely. Yep. And and we knew that when Biden, we were electing uh, him. The crime yeah. bill. Right. The crime bill, the welfare reform bill, glass repeal of Glass-Steagall, uh, the explosion of the prison industrial complex. All uh, that. Sexual, sexual abuse charges, especially yeah. most prominently from Tara Reid. This is Gulf. what I try to tell people. They're like, no, no, Biden's different. I'm like, but if you line up all the things that like Trump said and or voted for and all the things that Biden has said and or voted for, they're not different, except Gulf. that Biden's going to war. They're just different. In, they're different in tone, but not content. Yes. Different tone. Much more presidential Gulf tone. Gulf War 2.0. He was integral to that. I mean, he's a hideous person, a hideous politician. Having said all that, this administration is clearly elder abuse. It feels like that. Agreed. Yeah. They and he, he has rapid onset dementia. So even though we were promised that the adults were now in control and rhetoric would be calm, every time he issues some more word salad, his lackeys have to go cover for him. Which they did with the New World Order thing. They're like, oh, he didn't really mean that or blah, blah, blah. Which takes us... Which yeah. takes us right back to uh, 30 years later, after Bush Sr., Biden said it again. And you know what? In a sense, he was right. Because after that, he said it comes around, around every three or four generations. He said it, right? Yep. And that is what is being dissolved now. That post- Are you doing Matrix stuff? I'm just doing Matrix stuff every time he freezes. Right. I just do Matrix stuff every time. Oh, he's back. <laughs> I'm, I'm learning. I'm learning how to work with it too. On yeah. this okay. End. <laughs> okay. So but yeah. So we had the the Cold War. It was bipolar. We had a brief unipolar moment. The neocons and the project for a new American century were the intellectual architectures of go go ape shit with this unipolar moment that resulted in Gulf War 2.0, the invasion of Iraq, and Rumsfeld had a memo that was released: go big, sweep it up things related and not. And it was all the expansion to all the wars Obama expanded us to. Mark French says, Boyce is exactly right. This is what is letting all of the economists, bankers, and Pentagon staffers from the Clinton and Obama administrations continue to determine national policy. 
with yes. the elder abuse, I think. And so when Germany reunified and the price we were with, that Secretary of State James Baker under Bush Sr. was willing to pay was not NATO would not move one one inch further towards Russia. Hmm. And what year was that? A 92. Oh, I think they've moved an inch closer. <laughs> they've incorporated the Baltic states. They've incorporated Poland, Romania, uh, Hungary. Uh, not sure. But they've incorporated a number of Warsaw Pact states. They have a missile site that's allegedly targeting Iranian ballistic missiles that they don't have 100 miles from the Russian border. That's an inch, at least an inch. Closer so wait, to they had to put NATO had to put a missile on the Russian border to point it at Iran. Yeah, of course. They had to to be safe in case Iran ever got but some missiles put, that they need to shoot down. Why couldn't they put that missile like in France and point it at Iran, or like in Egypt and point it at Iran or something? Well, it feels like we're maybe not getting the full story. <laughs> well, so you see, the story is that NATO uh, lied and America <laughs> lied. And they moved much more than an inch and were extremely provocative to Russia. And the goal has been what it is, has been in the William Bloom book for decades, regime change, even a heavyweight like Russia, if they can get away with it. With Yeltsin, they did. No, Putin's just bad. Sumner. <laughs> yeah. Putin's bad. Putin's bad, okay. Okay, Putin's bad. Burn. Burn. He's just bad, okay. That's all you need to know. You don't need yeah. to know anymore. Putin's bad. Well, if you're listening to Porth Orthodoxy, you do want to know more, and I'm here to tell it. Yeah. Lawrence Sumner, president of Harvard and uh, uh, advisor, to, advisor to Obama and uh, – Jeffrey Sachs, who I actually like often as an economist, and all of what they call the Chicago Boys, the University of Chicago uh, School of Economics. Economists yeah. that, that, that come out of the Milton Friedman School, they privatized the hell out of, starting with Chile, which was on 9-11 as well, 9-11, 1973. <laughs> But the Chicago boys in the Chicago School of Economics have been privatizing <laughs> everything they can get their hands on. Yeah. And that included Russia in the 90s. So when Putin came to power to basically make sure Yeltsin would not see criminal charges, uh, he became a, an authoritarian for the pride of Russia and for the state power of Russia. And he... He made an accommodation with the oligarchs that you can have your billions from the sold-off state agencies, but don't involve yourself with politics and don't take any more. And the, the West, America, still thinking it has this unipolar moment aiming for rechange. It, it feels like uh, maybe Kolomoisky didn't listen to Putin. Kolomoisky's the guy that had one plus one media. He's the billionaire that has been bankrolling the president. He's the billionaire oligarch that, that got rich off of taking over uh, state agencies after the fall of the Russian Empire. He's one of the most notorious oligarchs in the Ukraine and a funder of the anti-corruption campaign of Zelensky. So he's supposed to be staying out of politics, according 
So is he like is he like a rival gangster with Putin? Well, or is this all a puppet game to keep us or are they all still having cocktails behind closed doors? No, Putin had to take a few oligarchs out behind the woodshed to show him that he meant business. And he did. And some served jail terms and some had assets confiscated. Kolomoisky's safe because he's in Ukraine. But many oligarchs escaped and uh, had their super yachts and their uh, luxury real estate and their billions in offshore accounts. And London has been absorbing a lot in the UK financial system and the UK associated financial system like the Caymans and Gibraltar and the Isle of Man and all this. So... Putin slapped around a few oligarchs and they are are saying na- nasty things and and funding people like Zelensky. Yes. But most of the oligarchs in Russia took the hint. But America America couldn't what? Give up this idea of their unipolar moment of uh, un unrivaled uh, hegemony. What they did, what whoa 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 whoa. <laughs> I'm I'm like the foil. I'm like yeah, the do, do semi average semi average citizen over here. What is a unipolar moment? <laughs> it means that it wasn't Russia and the US anymore. It was just the US and we've been riding that wave for a while. Just the US what? As the the, the dominating superpower whenever the Soviet Union fell. Oh. The US was they were the boss. They were the big they were the gang boss of the planet. Right. And then it was like riding that wave. We're like, okay, while we're here, we're going to do whatever we can. Meanwhile, China has been doing a do, sort do, of do, do, do. a grassroots movement in Africa. Um, <laughs> like doing. Talk, yeah, talk about, talk, talk about can, BRICS. Talk about BRICS because I didn't find out about that until I started making friends with uh, people in South Africa who actually cared about what was going on. And I have commentary from South Africa um, when you guys are done making the intro right bricks b-r-i-c-s can you explain what that acronym means and what the entity or that organization means let me uh close out the unipolar moment yeah yeah Yeah. sorry yeah to explain why ukraine is getting fucked with america still wants regime change in a superpower russia they're using ukraine as their playground to do so they think it is quote unquote in play. But no one in the State Department or the, the national security state speak Ukrainian or Russian or have a cultural or historical understanding of it. And they they don't realize that you can't fuck with a, a nuclear armed superpower. Nuclear armed superpower. So the U.S. is taking a giant two-by-four and shoving it into Ukraine to try to leverage Russia into being controlled by the U.S. Right, because for them, it's free. There are no boots on the ground, and it's just a few billion dollars worth of military transfers. That's it. U.S. troops aren't dying in Ukraine. Right. Wouldn't it just be easy to, since I don't think this is necessarily a battle that Russian soldiers are necessarily passionate about, I don't know. Why couldn't they just have assassinated Putin then? Why don't they just like bribe Russian pilots like a million dollars an airplane to just come land and give them asylum and do that with every Russian soldier that has a piece of equipment? Every time they come over, say, here's a million dollars, soldier. Give me your shit. And just... Because Russia is pinning down the entire Ukrainian army, and they can't move. And Russia, this I get this take from Scott Ritter a lot, that Russia 
could just obliterate Ukraine. But what do you think, dog? Bork. <laughs> a bork and bork. <laughs> uh, this is not a war of territory. They have political goals. And the political goals is to make Ukraine permanently neutral, like Austria or Finland. That's all they want to do. Russia and, wants Ukraine to be neutral. That's, yeah. That's, yes, right. And that was what the Minsk agreement after 2014 offered. That was the negotiated offer on the table for eight years. So for the Western media to say Russia's not willing to negotiate, they've been, they had the minced agreement signed. This was all there. It was all ready. But America just couldn't keep its hands off this shine that was in play. And so that's why they are still committing fuckery in the Ukraine. And it was effortless to get American public opinion behind it because of the conflation of interests between the military industrial big media <laughs> yeah. and the government let me let this dog out yeah okay. he's feeling it man that dog's feeling yeah, he's it he's got right feelings now. about uh the military industrial complex and big media and the government this is what i find really interesting is uh, people are like oh the poor people of ukraine i'm like well they could negotiate a truce they could they could honor the agreement was that was already in place. If yeah. you don't want people to die and you don't want war, then keep the Ukraine neutral and honor the agreement that's in place. But you can only That's do how that. you save the people of Ukraine. Yeah, but you can only have that conversation if you don't if you if you're not just like, well, Putin started it, so we have to spank Putin. Oh, because we've been like told he was the bad guy since yeah. since Hillary lost the campaign and she blamed her whole campaign. Yeah. On him, right. Like, right. so Putin's the bad guy. Putin started it. We need to spank Putin. That's how we save the people oh, of Ukraine. Right. We're, we're we a very punitive country. We, don't we like save to spank. the people of Ukraine by keeping our noses out of other people's business. No. We save the people of Ukraine by spanking Putin because he's just bad and he just does bad things for no reason. So we want him spanked. Spank. I see a lot of spanking memes about Putin, not necessarily literal spanking, but everybody's just working out their weird, ghoulish bloodlust on Putin. Well, everybody's bloodlust got got just just inflated insanely over the last couple of years through the trend of making it okay to wish that anybody that doesn't want to wear a mask just go jump off a cliff. Right, right. So everybody's already their hackles are up and they're 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 salivating to have someone to be mad at. Somebody to spank. Unless you get soothed, you keep looking for something to be a bloodhound for. Mm. You have to soothe the bloodhound like you do with Tulsa when you do the play fighting with him yeah. where he gets to be all feisty and he gets to be a wild beastie for a little while. Yeah. And then when you're done, you snap your fingers and he's like, he's panting, but he's going to sit down and he's going to be calm and he's going to pay attention to you because you're telling him it's time to calm down. Yeah, there's no kill switch for the bloodlust of the United States. Uh, they don't have that kill switch. No, all the people that have been traumatized into needing to be mad at somebody for being unhappy. Uh. And now it's Putin. Russian civilization began in Kiev. Which is in Ukraine. Which is in Ukraine. The Vikings coming down the Dnieper River from the north and the, the Turkish tribes of the steppes combining at Kiev about a thousand years ago is considered the birthplace of Russia. These, the Ukrainians are cousins to Russians. That is why Putin said they're not a state. They've only been a state since the fall of the Soviet Union. Mm. Ukraine used to be it's used to be part of Russia. Yes. Oh my god. It was a, 
it was. A- and and what they keep talking about, if you've heard the term the Azov Battalion, um, this is the problematic group of people in the Ukrainian military that uh, have been called neo-Nazis, um, but so some people Azov are... the Azov Battalion is a group of soldiers in the Ukrainian military. Y- yes. Uh, or, or they're their own gang that have been absorbed into the military, but you see lots of photos of Ukrainian military uniforms with Azov Battalion and Nazi symbols, which people have been calling neo-Nazis. And one of the ladies I was listening to yesterday is like, I think that's way incorrect. They're... They're not new Nazis. These are the old Nazis. These are the Nazis that have been there since World War II. It never went away there. And so what's what's going on in the Donbass region region and what's been going on for a long period of time has been this Nazi-Russian battle. And I don't know what that beef is. Well, I'm here to tell you. Okay, tell me about it. Uh, Roughly the eastern third of Ukraine is Russian-speaking and culturally, ethnically, linguistically Russian. After the Maidan USA-backed coup in 2014, the Russian language the Russian language was outlawed, and the Azov Battalion took up positions right across from the Donbas and killed 14,000 people, Ukrainians. Who did that? The this Azov is the Azov Battalion. Battalion. This is the the Nazi battalion that. Um... Uh, Zelensky said, oh, it is what it is. They're defending their country. Um, they, right? they killed 14,000 Ukrainians. Far more than the, would have been killed in the last several weeks. In the Donbass. Yeah. And Odessa is on the Black Sea. It is a Russian-speaking, ethnically, culturally lived So Ukrainians city. are, Ukrainians are Some, killing Ukrainians. Ukrainian well, Nazis yes. are killing Ukrainian Russian-speaking people. Yeah, wait, and in, in Odessa... <laughs> yeah, just let it sink in for a second. No, no, so this is like when the U.S. was like, we're at war with Japan, so we need to take all of our Japanese citizens and put them in concentration camps on U.S. soil. It's like that, but except instead of putting Russian-speaking Ukrainian we're citizens not in, in concentration... Not them. They're just killing them. They're just killing Kill. them. The Ukrainian army is killing Ukrainian citizens because they speak Russian. 14,000 people is such a large number, it's hard to wrap your head around. Here's something gorier that may be easier to wrap your head around. In 2014, dozens of people in Odessa were protesting the government that they did not, that did not recognize them and that they did not recognize. The Azov Battalion burnt them alive. At least 37, possibly dozens. That's the footage that was in um, Winter on Fire that was even more gory than the footage that was from Ukraine on Fire was the remains of these people who were just charred remains in this building. So in 2014, Ukrainian soldiers were killing Ukrainian civilians because they were a little too Russian? Yeah, they were Russian speakers and they, they did not want this new government. Incidentally, constitutionally... They say that that uh, head of state of Ukraine after Maidan was impeached. He was not impeached. He was. He, there were not enough votes for the, him to be constitutionally impeached. He was ousted. But went, yeah, but they went along with him, and that is real actual Nazis killing Russian Ukrainians. That is the heart of why 
the struggle exists. And when NATO decided to destroy Yugoslavia as an alternative economic arrangement to capitalism, what? NATO said that they were doing it in self-defense against Serbia because of Serbian... Go back. What did NATO Serbia. say? About Serbia. Serbia. Uh, Russia was pissed off at Serbia. Or no, NATO was pissed off at Serbia. Okay. I think because they were an economic, uh, an alternative economic model to the West. But they said it was because of Serbian atrocities in Kosovo. In any event... This is what started the NATO war against Serbia, which is in Europe, which was extremely violent. NATO went into war against Serbia. Mm-hmm. And their rationale was that it was self-defense in uh, union with Kosovo. Kosovo was not a country. Kosovo is still not recognized by Russia. Russia says that they are recognizing the People's Republic of Luhansk and Donetsk the two pieces of the Donbass. So they're using the United States' rationale to obliterate Yugoslavia to defend their their interests and their Russian people in eastern Ukraine. So what you're saying is Russia is doing the exact same thing that the U.S. and NATO has done before. With greater justification. Mm. Yes. Because it's actually pieces of their actual country. And also, as Mark French is saying, the, the Russians must, at the very least, have a land bridge to Crimea. Crimea is, uh, in, in that where, where's the Sevastopol or the, they have yeah, a- Yeah, in Crimea. In Crimea. So that's where the Russians have like one of their, what they're called warm water ports. So that's where their ships and submarines leave, but they need a bridge to it from Russia. And Ukraine is that bridge. Yeah, they ha- if if uh, NATO is going to use Ukraine as a playground, Russia cannot abandon its only warm water port, Sevastopol. It must retain its single warm water port. Who owns Crimea? What is Crimea? Crimea was traditionally a part of Russia from the Russian Empire on and well into the Soviet era. Khrushchev was... 1950s. Yes, in the early 1950s, Ukraine, uh, Khrushchev, who was Ukrainian, as a gift, gave the Crimea to Ukraine. Huh. So it's not always been an integral part of Ukraine, which itself never existed as a nation state ever until the fall of the Soviet Union. It had always been traditionally a part of Russia. So I feel as though we're all we're talking about reasons why Russia has a right to be mad about the U.S. and NATO fucking around with Ukraine. Um, they have a right to defend Russian-speaking Ukrainians, culturally Russian Ukrainians. They have a right to a significant and strategically important uh, piece of land and war and, and its only warm water port that it has had for centuries. This is a core strategic concern to Russia. Right, if you care about Russia. (laughs) 
Right. I just mean like so many people just think of Russia as like this big bad thing that we hope doesn't screw us over and we should probably try to stop them. You know, like oh. so many people I know on both sides of the divide are just like, meh, Russia, you know? And so like you're talking about Russia as if it's like a country with like rights and citizens and a cultural history and, and like deserves to have a, a time on the planet that is decent. And it's very interesting to me to hear someone talk about Russia like I might talk about Scotland. Yeah, because they're supposed right. to be the bad guys. Well, this is this is probably the cliff notes that I've gathered from everything that I've been looking at. Is the United States has, as he said, enjoyed being unipolar for a long time, but um, with all the movement that is going on with the World Economic Forum trying to create the new world order, there's concern that if China and Russia get too chummy with each other, um, it won't be unipolar anymore. China and Russia or China or Russia will run things and the U.S. would not like that. So the idea is to kick Russia while it's down. So to prevent yeah. Russia and China from being buddies, which brings us to the BRICS thing. Right. We all do. Nobody wants war. War is awful. It's always the innocent who's, who suffer. But if we want to understand why Russia is doing what it does, if we want to acknowledge the simple fact that Russia is a great power, that it is nuclear armed, that it has uh, some of the most amazing literature and culture and arts in the history of the world, then let's endeavor to at least understand in a non-simplistic way why Russia is acting the way it is. Here, here. That puts a bow on that. But, <laughs> <laughs> but what... The national security state and the foreign policy establishment of the Harvard Kennedy School of Government and Georgetown and Johns Hopkins and all the think tanks and that whole what's often called just the blob, they still think America is is in this unipolar moment. <laughs> Not. Mm -mm. What has been occurring since the early aughts of the 21st century is the rise of the BRICS. And the BRICS is an acronym. It stands for British, Russia, India, and China. Oh, Initially, actually, it's Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. Oh, God, what'd I say? British. British. Oh, right. yeah, Brazil. I only know that because I'm looking at an image of it. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. for sure. Bolsonaro. Brazil, Russia, <laughs> India, China, South Africa. So that's a block. That's like a like if you talk about the G eight. Was a bit of a latecomer. But it's new to the yeah. party. Yeah. Well, you know what it harkens back to me. It harkens me back to is the non-aligned movement from the fifties. Are either of you all familiar with them? Uh. -uh. They were really important in the Cold War. And their leaders were Nasser in Egypt and Nehru in uh, India and Sukarno in Indonesia and Nkrumah, a revolutionary leader in Ghana, and uh, who else? Oh, and Tito, of course, Yugoslavia. They all said, we don't want to be in the, West, in the Warsaw Pact or the Western world, quote unquote, Western. And BRICS is kind of like a new version of that 50s and 60s non-aligned movement. How dare they? Well, they're... How dare they not include the U.S.? This is in opposition, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> it's, the, uh, 
what do they say in the House of Commons in London? The the faithful opposition, the loyal the loyal opposition. Mm. <laughs> what I saw when I was in South Africa is just from reading the what what I saw going on there is that China is coming to all over Africa and saying, "Hey, let's um, let's build you guys some roads. Let's get you some water systems. Let's take care. You know, we 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 need stuff from you, uh, all your coal and resources. Um, but we're gonna let's let's." Let's upgrade, and and they're doing it in a in a way that seems very attractive to people, who are, you know, being promised Mercedes if they just let them mine coal. And I think that's been this sort of this because uh, I don't know China's big, but China doesn't have oil. How do you have a country that big without without oil? I don't I don't. China doesn't yeah. have any oil. China's like remarkably, it has some resources, but there's a lot of resources it's lacking that Africa has and Russia has. And you know the U.S. has. Huh? You know, you know what China has uh, mineral-wise that are very strategic? All of the rare earth minerals. Mm. All the like phone making stuff? Yeah, all the stuff. Molybdenum and computers and telecommunications yeah. equipment. Mm. But uh, China knew it was going to rise. The word Zhongguo China means middle kingdom. Middle kingdom. It has always seen it middle of the world. Mm. Oh, Zhongguo means middle of the world? Yeah, Zhongguo means middle kingdom. It means it is, it's China sees itself as the middle kingdom in the middle of the world. Okay. Which is a geographic representation of its incredibly chauvinistic sense of itself as the singular world power of all history. Mm. I mean... Mm. The more I learn about China, the, <laughs> like they have been around the longest of any single culture that's still in rap in like large existence today. And they kind of invented everything first. And like China always seems to me to definitely be comfortable with the long con like and the long just game. Sort of chugging right along. They're they're they understand the long game the long game yeah while like you look at you know u.s like you know teen studs pounding their chest and being gorillas <laughs> about how cool they are meanwhile china is is doing a number all around them while they're doing their dance it's you know? true that's definitely what it seems like um so mokai from <laughs> south africa tuned in and watched your show after the fact last week and he actually brought up the China, I mean the Russia, Bricks. Russia, South Africa connection. He mm. didn't call it BRICS, uh. but but he said um, the Ukraine invasion is is something more than just Russian aggression. During apartheid in South Africa, Russia gave the struggle support, training, and weapons. So. So the ruling government in South Africa right now is not going to condemn Putin anytime soon. I think the longer it goes on, the more skeletons will be unveiled, as the U.S. was never held accountable for many war crimes, which Russia is shining a light on now. Mm. Yeah, Russia, the Soviet Union, provided a lot of uh, aid and political support and weapons for the African National Congress. Mm. ANC. And, and Mozambique and Angola. Uh, so Russia had a lot of proxy wars and China had a lot of proxy wars as well as America, not as many, but they were playing the grand chessboard as big new Brzezinski has called it. Mark French brings up um, CELAC, C-E-L-A-C, is an alliance of Latin American and Caribbean states attempting to hedge against the Monroe Doctrine of the United States. All these little groups popping up. 
Well, yes. And that brings us to what is called BRICS Plus or BRICS Outreach. Mm. And that is an idea that South Africa came up with when it hosted the fifth BRICS Summit, when it was added to be the fifth member and held the fifth summit in 2013. They said, we're going to conduct BRICS Plus BRICS Outreach to reach out to local, regional multilateral organizations. So BRICS is the axis that is being used by these major players to reach out to pre-existing multilateral organizations like CELAC, like uh, Organization of American States, Organization for African Unity, and even sub uh, units, smaller regional multilateral units. And they're going uh, gangbusters <laughs> in this regard. I care about you and that cat. Is it dinner time? Cats and dogs. Cats and dogs living together. Everybody oh. out. <laughs> Such a cutie. Yeah, so CELAC is the Comunidad de Estados Latinoamericanos y Caribeños. Oh. So the community of estates, Latin American and Cuban. Before we launch into BRICS, uh, I want to launch into the... Well, yeah, okay. Brick, bricks, bricks show that Russia and China are the two honchos together. Bricks is the the next level of congealing of geopolitical and economic power. But and this takes you takes us back to a callback to what you mentioned, Dark, about uh, African countries are saying China's just opening up these suitcases full of money for yep. us to build ports. Yep. And that is the Belt and Road Initiative. This is even bigger than uh, BRICS. It was initially thought of in the early 21st century as kind of a new Silk Road connecting China and Europe, like the old Silk Road. Oh. But it became more formally understood and iterated by Xi Jinping in 2013 as the Belt and Road Initiative. And now it is six major corridors from China throughout Eurasia to Europe, especially Eastern Europe and the Middle East, in six major corridors of uh, natural gas and oil pipelines and high-speed rail. America still can't even finish LA to the Bay Area high-speed rail. Mm -hmm. And, and, China has already crisscrossed its country, and now it's got three major corridors across Eurasia, and it has the new maritime Silk Road through the Indian Ocean to Africa and wait, through wait. the Pacific. There, oh, you mean on boats? Yeah, yeah. maritime. <laughs> okay, maritime. Yes, I don't know, man. I just found out a couple of years ago that there are giant internet cables running along the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. Like they, they had phone cables first. No, no, it's weird. Fucking cabled well, all the yeah anyway. yeah they cabled all the way across the fucking Atlantic Ocean like I just like I don't know maybe they do have a giant tunnel underneath <laughs> the ocean and the NSA knows how to tap them oh no I'm sure that's probably what's happening with this call oh they can't have the three of us in a room together for that's too right. long mostly you two well you know all I hear mentioned is that these corridors these land corridors through Eurasia to Middle East and Europe and other parts of Asia are high-speed rail and oil and natural gas. I 
I would absolutely assume that there are also high-speed internet cables too mm-hmm. that allow for decades of future growth mm-hmm. because the entire Chinese Politburo are all engineers. And the maritime roads to Africa and to uh, Central and South America. And while all America knows how to do is break things and kill people, and all China knows how to do is build infrastructure and write checks that do not bounce. Mm. Oh, ouch, ouch. So now building upon the BRICS is this new conglomeration of 144 countries throughout the world are now Belt and Road Initiative uh, countries. This is the block that will replace the American empire as it sinks beneath the waves. So it's circuitry. I see it as circuitry. Uh, You know, when I lived in Los Angeles, the way Los Angeles is built, it's not like traditional cities that have um, the heart of the city and then all the veins going in and out of the city. That's what traditional cities were built. You have the center of the city, which is the heart, and then all the web, the spider web going out. L.A. doesn't have that. L.A. is a circuit board. Mm. It doesn't have a heart. It really is um, circuits that people run in. I would run into the same people all over L.A. because we were in the same circuit, the same industry circuit or, or profession or, or whatever the thing was. And it feels like what's happening, what I'm seeing happening with this Belt and Roads Initiative is that in that circuit, you're creating culture. It's not just about getting things from from Europe to China or China to Europe. It really is bridging a circuit. It's like its own road of culture. The planet will become organized along trade routes culturally rather than along these little ink blots of countries. Where those transportation routes are going to be, there are people who don't have access to cheap data. Maybe that will soon have access to cheap data. Like maybe it was like that before with the old trade routes. Like mm. you would have these these scatterings of seeds along your trade route of culture and language and instrumentation and farming techniques and science. And then um, then we were like, no, no, we need to have countries. And so we like chopped everything up and divided it into countries as if everything within that border is one kind of person mm. and culture and farming technique and musical instrument. And everybody on the other side of the line in the other chop is a different kind of people and farming technique and musical instrument. And, and it's like maybe these trade routes of the one, not one belt, that's what it used to be called. The belt and road initiative mm. will take us uh, forward back into this kind of world that is divided along like if you like if you take a magnet and draw it through mm. shavings right and you get these little pathways through the shavings that the magnet leaves behind and that's what the trade routes are going to do is they're going to kind of um culturize the planet along those lines of the trade routes rather than so much this country. That's a visual that I had come to mind when you were talking about this initiative. There's still blue. There's still blue eyed people in Afghanistan from when Alexander rampaged for Macedonia across Turkey and Iran, Afghanistan into India. Can you imagine the cultural interchange between Greek 
ideas and Indian ideas at that time. Mm. So it's not actual genetic material still remains on those old routes Mm. of Mm. trade and conquest, but uh, incredibly cross fertilizing philosophy and culture as well. Mm -hmm. They don't know what happened to Jesus from uh, year three to he started his ministry at 30. Some people think he was in India. Mark French says Belt and Road is much easier to visualize. It's like the modern Silk Road. If you tilt your globe properly, all of Russia, Asia, Europe, and Africa touch each other. It's essentially one giant continent. And Mm. then there's the Americas. Booyakasha. Can you bring that map back up? Uh, The Belt and... Yeah, that one with Africa and Eurasia. Because that, you are exactly right. And you just reiterated what the absolutely legendary British geographer, Halford Macander, called. Okay, if you look at those routes, uh, uh, China to, to, to Europe, Macander called Eurasia the geographical pivot of history in 1904. Uh because it, it is a continent of abundant resources and is so vast that it is its it very insularity makes it somewhat easy to defend. I mean, even Nazi, who was, I mean, even Hitler, who was never known to back down from a challenging war, couldn't do it because Russia was just too big. Right. And then in 1919, a little later, McKinder saw exactly what you see, Ainsley, what I see as a, a junior in high school sitting on the, Ro- the Roman Kalamigdon Fort at the s- confluence of the Sava and Danube rivers in Belgrade, Yugoslavia. I felt that Eurasia was connected to Africa. And what McKinder call it is the world island. And that's why China is not only pulling in Central and South America, but is really realizing Mackinder's ground-shaking realization of Eurasia and Africa as a world island and why China is really investing heavily in some of those routes going to Pakistan to give them another port uh, through Afghanistan and to East Africa. East Africa is vital to the Belt and Road. So this is Mackinder's map right here from Wikipedia. You have it, it, you sort of take your globe in a way that we can't tip our globes because mm. our globes have a pin that goes from north to south, right. quote unquote, north to south through the planet. So we can only rotate our globes, quote unquote, east west. But if you could f- rotate your globe any old direction, you could tilt. You could be holding it and then tilt the whole thing towards you, so that you're looking down at this giant chunk of. Russia, mm. Europe, the top of Africa, like all of those things. And then around the edges of your peripheral vision, as you're looking down at this giant landmass in the new center of the globe, you would see little bits of Africa, little bits of Southern Africa, little bits of the Americas and little bits of Australia around the periphery as disconnected portions, but the main heart of the planet right. and the most landmass um, is is Eurasia and Africa. Bingo. China has, as you guys stated, no natural resources to speak of except for rare earth minerals and some coal. 
So it has an insatiable appetite for energy, raw materials, and commodities of every type. And as China's economy matures, it is now a consumer economy and actually has a purchasing parity power, which makes it an economy larger than the United States. If you judge by what the Chinese people can afford with their currency, it is a larger economy than the United States. And it will be a larger economy in gross terms in just a few years. And this Belt and Road Initiative is 14 times larger than the Marshall Plan, which the United States used to rebuild Europe after World War II. What does that mean? So Europe got bombed. America was rich. We built a plan to go back and help Europe recover while also putting our fangs into everything that we did over there. That's a horrible story, Dark. Well, that's my version of it. So, well, it Europe was completely, f- utterly flattened. Yeah, just after the World Wars. Flattened. Yeah, after World War II, and America rebuilt it all, and it was a major, colossal undertaking. Belt and Road is fourteen times larger. And who and is it, it being run by? China. Oh. Isn't it China? China, but with the, it is. But uh, Russia. Everyone keeps saying Russia. It it has it doesn't. Its GDP is smaller than Italy. Yeah. Well, when oil gets up to 150 gallons, it'll be larger than the EU combined. Huh. Because of Russia's geologic, a uh, geographical position, as you showed in those maps, because of its size, its geographical position, its mineral wealth, its agricultural production. It's nuclear weapons. Russia is in no way really a junior partner to China in this endeavor. Mm-hmm. And it is an integral partner to China in this endeavor. And that's why on February 5th, Russia and China issued a joint statement that said that their partnership has no limits. And this... Best friends forever. Aww. Yeah. That's what China and Russia did? Yeah. Ah. Uh, <laughs> did you see our pinky swear? Yeah, yeah. as I Russia did. and China. Best friends That's what yeah. friends are for. <laughs> Russia and China are like total besties because they they each offer. Well, in the fifties, China came hat in hand to the Soviet Union. Russia is now kind of coming hat in hand a bit towards China, but they know that they're partners and they they both play the long game. Mm. And they issued a communique at the beginning of the Olympics just this year, in February 5th. And it really laid out in no uncertain terms the multipolar polar world that was that is going to emerge as a discernible fact. While America still thinks it's unipolar, and China and Russia in this joint statement say, no, it's multipolar. No. And we are going to use what's left and still uh, unsullied by American power of the post-World War II architecture, most consequentially the United Nations. This joint, this joint statement reiterated a, uh, a strong belief in the role of the United Nations to play and the role of international law that all of the very sovereign nation states have all agreed to and that there should be no more shenanigans 
in the internal affairs of sovereign. Wait, the U.S. did not agree to anything like that. Yep. So no more shenanigans. And that, and that uh, Russia and that America using the excuse of human rights to uh, selectively interfere with the human rights of other countries like China will no longer be tolerated. So Russia and China really laid out the groundwork of what is to come of them as the colonel, BRICS as the nucleus, mm, and the 144 yeah. countries of the Belt and Road Initiative as the junior partners of the multipolar world that will definitively put an end to America's unipolar moment. No wonder the U.S. is throwing a hissy fit. Mm. Like, if you really zoom out and look at everything, like, I would be throwing a hissy fit if I thought that I was, like, the prodigy child. You know, it's like the youngest child that gets the most attention and the least structure. That's the U.S. on the planet, you know? Mm. Most attention, least structure, thought that they were really special because they did everything way faster than all the other kids, but they actually did everything way faster than all the other kids because they got to copy what all the other kids had already done. This is in no way a reflection on my actual baby sister in real life or how she's doing things. Um, but but the U.S. is like kind of throwing a hissy fit because they thought they were like this special gifted child, and it yeah. turns out that the other kids are actually way more grown up and have been around the block longer and are going to be able to maintain a level of energy longer than the baby of the family is able to maintain it. And now the U S is like, but I thought I was the center of attention. And they're like, no, no, this movie isn't for you. It's an R rated movie and you need to go to bed because you're way younger than everybody else. So in the big scheme of things, we were a bubble empire. Yeah. We kind of went, whoop, yeah. And I thought we were really important. And a lot of people haven't come to terms with the fact that we are actually the bad guy in a lot of stories. We're a bully. In a lot and of stories. Most US, I would say most U.S. citizens don't know that the U.S. is not the big sister on the playground. The U.S. is actually the bully on the playground. It's hard for people to get. That's a hard thing to accept. Well, uh, the publisher, Henry Luce, the publisher of Time magazine and Fortune and Life, which were very influential in the post-World War II era, he created this concept of the American century. The 20th century will be the American century. And that and American exceptionalism have been key cornerstones of American ideology uh, since then. But from Bretton Woods in 1948 till America going off the gold standard in 1971 or 73. Maybe it's 74. For some reason, I'm thinking it's 74. That's it. But that is the century. And we are really witnessing its definitive collapse now. And because Russia and China always play the long game, they knew that these multilateral institutions did not wish them well, were organs of American control. So Russia and China created their own parallel institutions. Ah. The biggest example is the Shanghai Cooperative Association. How dare they? Organization. That is the nucleus of its own NATO, its own European Union its own World Bank, and that includes China, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Pakistan, an American ally, Russia, Tajikistan, and Uzbekistan, all former constituent republics, mostly constituent... By the way, it was 1971, he was right. All former USSR? And those were all former USSR except for Pakistan, which has been a key American ally, 
And in 2021, Iran joined the Shanghai <gasps> Cooperation Organization. So this is a very potent block, as potent or more potent than the BRICS. Wow. Didn't we just try to stage a coup in Pakistan last week? Oh, tell me more. Y'all check your notes. Mark French says the United States is leaning heavily into austerity. John McCain used to make fun of Russia for being a gas station masquerading as a government when the U.S. has just become a banking cartel backed by military. Mm-hmm. Russia went from a substance farming peasant country to an industrialized global power faster than any culture or country at the turn of the last century. Uh, this is just press That's TV. Great. I don't know this source. Uh, press TV is just the first thing that comes up in the Google search when I search for uh, failed U.S. coup in Pakistan. Uh, analyst, U.S. coup failure in Pakistan, a sign that empire's days as hegemon are over. An American political analyst and journalist says the U.S. coup failure against the government of Pakistan Prime Minister Imran Khan is a sign that empire's days as uh, hegemon are over. For the first time in the history of Pakistan's parliament, its members chanted death to America as they rejected a no-confidence vote, which sought to oust Prime Minister Khan, saying, quote, foreign powers are interfering in the country's democratic process. Anyway, that just quote, happened foreign like powers, unquote. 14 days ago or something. Press TV is Iranian state media. Okay. Oh, snap. Can we and move... Can we move out of this zone of the planet to one of those zones of the planet? To the Belt and Road part of the planet? Or? <laughs> All right, here's a Fresh link to TV that. TV is awesome. Yeah, there's a, a, there's a link to that article. It's the first thing that came up on Google when I Googled. You want us to read news, boys, from the Middle East? Well, you know, you can't even access the Kremlin website now. Right, that's because Putin's bad, okay? I mean, uh, not only RT, you can't even access the website of a great power now because America is conducting information warfare. Yeah, we, we don't know what's going on. That's why we that's why nobody here knows what BRICS is. Like when I say nobody, I mean most people that instantly threw up a Ukrainian flag probably don't know about what BRICS is <laughs> or what the that's end of the that. empire looks like yeah. or a lot of people just aren't there yet. Well, Press TV, because they're Iranian, were thrown off of YouTube many years ago. Oh. RT was thrown off now. Yeah, last, like, two weeks ago. Yeah. yeah. And uh, uh, Julian Assange had his money fucked with by Visa, MasterCard. Julian Assange, was he, he was raising money as a journalist, and he was being pursued by all these governments. So no, they no, just no. So those big credit card companies uh, cut off the tit. No, 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 no. Visa, MasterCard, and PayPal uh, cut Julian Assange and WikiLeaks access to money in 2018. As you may have noted from my previous article at stonefruit.substack.com. Pull that up. (laughs) Assange was kind of the test case of fintech fucking with enemies of the American interests. Or or whatever the empire's interest, whether it's American or trans-American. Uh, and we just got to see the most recent uh, version of that uh, test with uh, the fundraiser for the truckers that were going to Ottawa and Canada. Not allowed. Where they just decided that they could 
not was it wasn't PayPal. It was, it was GoFundMe. GoFundMe no, could just cut off the money, and they could freeze people, your yeah. damn bank accounts if you even did it. Millions yeah. of people. That's pretty. Donated millions of dollars. Yeah. To these citizens of the planet who are saying enough is a fucking enough and they're saying it for a reason but gofundme just forcibly returned everybody's donations and then the people who tried to donate the government blocked their bank accounts so they couldn't touch whatever money they had left in canada yeah oh my god they blocked their bank accounts so that they could not make bank transactions Right. And China knew that this kind of stuff could happen to them as they rose to international power. I'm scared. So, so in addition to the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, they created other parallel institutions. They created Union Pay, which is with over a billion users is large. Union Pay. So this is China that Russia just signed up with whenever we tried to like cock block credit in Russia. China and Russia said, well, we're just going to go over here and do this thing. Right. Union Pay as well as Alipay. And so these are the parallel parallel institutions that you're talking about. Right. I think that they are were intentionally created by China as their own SWIFT, which is the Western Interbank Transfer Organization. And as their own automated clearinghouse, which is the way that consumers can uh, charge a debit card and have it clear. Europe has SIPA, the single euro payment area, and TIPS, the target instant payment system, as cross-border instantaneous payments of euro around the EU. And with UnionPay and Alipay and WeChat Pay, China has created its own independent SWIFT and ACH and cross-border payment rail and international financial interaction rail. It created these institutions to operate parallel the Western American-dominated ones. And this brings us to the litany of shit that the West did to quote-unquote punish Russia for invading the Ukraine, but in in actuality, is only going to serve to destroy itself as quickly as conceivably possible. And I'd like to just run through a bullet points on that. Yes, after this brief interruption. <laughs> this is important. Okay, go. Okay, now even no, no, we yeah. weren't we weren't interrupting you. The the internet was interrupting. Run you. through it. Yeah, go. Even before the war, even before the invasion of Ukraine. Nord Stream 2 was a gas and oil pipeline from Russia to Germany. It had been completed. It was done. They were ready to turn on the valves. But American pressure persuaded Germany to abandon the use of the pipeline. I love it when he freezes at the end of a sentence. And, yeah. Okay, go. So Germany said, uh, yeah, we won't, we're America not going to tap said, it. We will give you liquefied natural gas to make up for all of that Russian gas. You'd have to have rush hour traffic from every port in America to Hamburg to make up for the amount of gas 80 million people who are a major world industrial power, unlike America, need to heat their homes and power their industry. It's impossible. Not to mention the fact that liquefied natural gas is compressed to an incredible degree and frozen to incredibly cold temperatures that put the entire 
structure of LNG ships under such immense pressure. Such immense pressure that? A 50 millimeter mortar round into any one of these ships would explode like a nuclear bomb. That sounds like a great idea. Anything to keep Germany and Russia from being friends, honestly. That's all I can say. <laughs> this is like G8 jealousy. Me. Yeah. There's no plan B. Mark, Mark says there are no ports that can even accept that, that can offload the gas into Europe. You've got Rotterdam and Hamburg. That's it. Jeez. That's not enough. Mm. That's not enough. We have 20 minutes left. What do you guys want to do? We haven't talked about the collapse of civilization as we know it. Oh, is it well, civilization let, or is it just the U.S. story? Oh. Let me, uh, okay. Uh, okay. Okay. Nord, Nord Stream. Okay. 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 Here's the thing. <laughs> no, Nord Stream 2 is a very foolish uh, decision taken by Germany. They're going to realize there is no plan B. Hmm. Germany must take Russian gas. Russia has recouped its $10 billion of investment in Nord Stream 2 and can sell whatever it doesn't sell in Europe to South Korea and Japan. So Germany is going to realize that its interests lie with Russia, especially for energy, which is why America did not want to see a deepening of that relationship. That is going to peel the EU off of America as an ally. South Korea and Japan are equally starved for energy. That is going to peel them off of America as an ally. So is this China? Yeah, China is already Australia's largest trading pattern a partner. That is going to peel Australia off as, as an ally of America. So you see that even these stalwart allies are going to see the writing on the wall at some point in the very near future and are going to join. The Russian. Mm. Uh... And these former stalwart allies are going to join the Russia-China axis. So tell us about the ruble now being backed by gold. Is that true? So as the petrodollar petrodollar, um, takes hits... I feel, and I we, suddenly we feel start like I need trading. to stockpile some other currency right now. Right. So, <laughs> so I heard, I saw something, I don't know the details, maybe you know more than I, that uh, Russia is now backing the ruble with gold. Is that a real thing? It is true. I've been waiting to write this article about how American hegemony is toast for weeks. And in those intervening weeks, I have seen the West's reaction to Russia's invasion of Ukraine and what Russia and China have been doing as countermeasures. And I'm glad I waited a few weeks Uh. because it's absolutely amazing what has occurred and how quickly it's occurred and how dire the petrodollar's uh, future looks. Mm. And if I may, I could just rattle off a bunch of bullet points and we'll see how much the interwebs cooperate with my... With my full rant mode. Yeah. And, well, before you do that, I'd like to say for people who aren't familiar with the show and are watching are the we show, here? we're not really just coming here to like offload some truth for you to integrate. This is like, uh, I'm interested in trying to figure out what's going on in the world, which means like if there's a problem to be fixed, it has to be diagnosed. So what is the problem? That's the general well, question so of the show. What is the problem? A bunch of people are dying in Ukraine. It's sad. And so... This show is really what we're trying to do here is is talk about um, 
our versions of what we've seen on the terrain of the story of this time of, that we're living in. It, Ukraine is a part of it right now. So we're trying to, I'm trying to fortify myself with people smarter than me who know more about the story than I do so that you, the audience, can um, see what I'm doing to figure out what the fuck's going on in the world. I'm not saying I know. All I'm saying is that this is how I'm trying to figure it out. And I really appreciate Boyce coming in today and offloading his immense uh, knowledge of uh, the subject at hand. And so as long as this thing will let you, please rattle off a laundry list of information to be integrated into people who give a shit. Yeah, this is a major geopolitical and macrostructural realignment that is going to change what has been the setting since World War, the end of World War II. So this is not any old data dump. This is major. Here's what happened. On the 24th of February, Russia invades. The next day, the UN Security Council tried to adopt a draft resolution condemning the, the invasion. The United Arab Emirates abstained. They are a key oil producer. Their abstention is very important. So right after the invasion, Security Council tries to condemn them. UAE abstains. The prices at the pump go through the roof. Saudi Arabia and UAE don't take Biden's calls. He wants them to produce more, to, to drop the price. He's, they tell him to go pound sand. So Biden has to go hat in hand to these quote-unquote rogue nations of Iran who uh, oh. Biden was in no hurry to restart the nuclear agreement with Iran, which was one of uh, Obama's only really great accomplishments. He went hat in hand to them and to Venezuela. Oh, Venezuela, right. Why didn't he approach who we have declared is the head of state, Guaido, in Venezuela? Because he's got no fucking power. Mm. Maduro's the actual head of state. And Venezuela has the largest known oil reserves on the planet. Yeah. Venezuela and Iran told Biden to go pound sand. <laughs> so on February 26, the U.S., EU, the U.K., and Canada agreed to cut Russia off of SWIFT. And SWIFT is? The international, the, the U.S.-dominated interbank transfer mechanism. Okay, so now Russia can't send money to other countries. But they made a carve out for energy because Russia needs to get paid and needs to pay. Oh. Huh. <laughs> huh. So it was swift except for energy, which in Russia's case is like, well, then fuck you anyway cuz that's really all we use swift for. Yeah, it's funny. We're we're sending arms to the Ukraine to fight Russia while buying oil from Russia. That's still that business is still rolling. Well, that yeah. that makes sense when you understand that money and business interests run the planet, and not actually countries and civilian interests. Huh. Assets to be managed. Okay, go on more on the list. If you want to talk about more fuckery, a few yeah. days later, February twenty eighth, Russia had nearly half of its gold and foreign reserve accounts frozen. By U.S., U.K., Japan, and EU banks. Oh. Half of their money was stolen from Russia. It's because they're bad. I'm sure it'd be fine. It's because they're bad, okay? 
I'm sure it will be fine because there will be a geopolitical moment when Russia will have to be a active partner and will demand as a quid pro quo that it gets its fucking oil and money back. Mm. They thought that they were really sticking it to Russia doing that. And it did for a while. The Russian ruble tanked. It went from 84 rubles to the dollar before the invasion to 139 rubles. It completely tanked. Vladimir Putin, no stranger to hardball, and a man who he doesn't issue threats. Ah. What he says he will do, and what he did to respond to the seizure of his state foreign reserves and gold reserves was to demand payment for Russian oil and gas in rubles. Mm. From 48 hostile nations. Who are these hostile nations? All of the EU, plus important financial centers like uh, Switzerland, Monaco, San Marino, the UK, uh, Singapore, and uh, other countries like Norway, a major oil power, which led the NATO bombing in Libya, and other countries like Iceland, uh, Canada, Australia, Japan, South Korea, New Zealand, Taiwan. It bears mentioning America's key allies are the, among them are the Five Eyes. The Five Eyes is a signal intelligence consortium of the US, Canada, the UK, Australia, and New Zealand. So Russia targeted all of those. The origins of the Five Eyes can be traced back to the informal meetings between the US and UK code breakers during the Second World War. Hmm. And, uh, other countries, but really those are the key countries. And Russia said, you're going to steal our money? You buy oils, you buy oil and gas in rubles now. So in early March, the UN, the Security Council resolution didn't pass, but the, G- the G- General Assembly resolution condemning the invasion and demanding Russian withdrawal did. But what was the vote at the UN? Russia voted against it, obviously. Former Soviet republics, constituent republics like Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, Armenia, and Tajikistan also abstained. These are all either in the Shanghai Cooperation Organization or in the Belt and Road Initiative. These are key countries in that Belt and Road Initiative in Eurasia. Other countries had no vote recorded, like Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan. Uh, We're busy that day. By John. They, wait, they don't have a vote recorded? Don't they have to officially abstain? Yeah, that's weird. So if they didn't vote, then they, by, by de facto abstention. But, but they, they didn't even take the formal trouble to vote to abstain. Wow. Yeah, there's a, con- a few countries like this, and I'll, go, I'll rattle through who voted what, because who voted what's very, very important. I'll tell you, we have five. We have f- roughly five minutes left. We can go overboard. Um, I can't even um, pretend that I understand like what all of this means. But wow. I, I am. I'm. I'm just. I'm saying. I understand what Boyce is saying with the timeline. I just mean like zoom out. Like what the heck is going on? I can imagine just popping into a conversation like this and being completely bamboozled about like what's going on on the planet and what it all means. Right now, I'm focusing exactly and precisely on the roll call of the UN vote 
the roll call UN vote condemning Russia for its invasion and demanding that it withdraw because the, the tally of the roll call is the tally of who will be in the Belt and Road and the mm. axis that will replace America. Oh. And that's why it's important to note that basically all of the former constituent republics of the Soviet Union either abstained or did not vote. And they are also already in the Shanghai organization, uh, a Shanghai cooperation organization. So you see Eurasia on block, standing behind Russia, China, and Shanghai cooperation organization. To continue on to the world island notion of Eurasia plus Africa equals Mackinder called the world island, Africa. The heartland of the globe. Yeah. Yes, the geographical heart, the geographical pivot of history. A lot of Africa either abstained or did not vote. Abstaining in Africa was Algeria, major oil country, Angola, major oil country, Burundi, Central Africa, Democratic Congo. That's the small one. That's not Zaire, which has a lot of resources. Equatorial Guinea, tiny but very oil rich. Madagascar, Mali, Mozambique has some oil. Namibia, Senegal, South Africa, S in the BRICS. South Sudan, Sudan, Tanzania, Uganda, Zimbabwe. Hmm. These are all countries that did not so Like, vote. yeah, we're not saying we're not saying shit to Russia. They didn't vote to say that Russia had to leave Ukraine. Right. They abstained. Wow. And in geopolitics, abstention in the UN means that you don't want to piss off either party, but you really don't want to piss what you see as the rising axis right. that will replace America. Here's very interesting. Like uh, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Azerbaijan, no vote was recorded for Ethiopia. The Horn of Africa is geographically very strategic because it controls the Suez Canal, the Persian Gulf, and the Indian Ocean. The Horn of Africa is not the only uh, site that controls the Suez Canal, Persian Gulf, and Indian Ocean, but is very important. And it's right next to Djibouti, which has about six countries have bases there, including China, which has its only overseas base is in Djibouti. Mm. It's in Djibouti. Hey. <laughs> I can't say Djibouti with your booty. Your booty. <laughs> Shake Djibouti. Frank Zappa rules. <laughs> so also, also abstaining in Africa was Morocco, a very important East meets West Islamic country, mm. a country that Trump had to bribe by allowing them to annex Western Sahara, which it had been fighting for decades in exchange for recognizing Israel. So it was getting another Islamic country to recognize Israel a lot of the fundamentalists that support Trump really backed Trump on that. Abstaining in Central and South America were Bolivia, El Salvador, which uses the dollar but is really into Bitcoin, and Nicaragua, which just re-elected Daniel Ortega of the 80s Sandinista fame that resisted American imperialism from the 80s and regained power in what were free and fair elections, for good news on this, see uh, Ben Dixon and Multipolarista, 
partners with Max Blumenthal and Aaron Mateo pushback. Nicaragua was a fair and free election, although the Western media says that it was all uh, horseshit and unfair and that Ortega jailed dissidents. No, but in any event, Nicaragua was the most recent bricks uh, to a, a Belt and Road country. So that was the vote. A few days after that is when uh, MasterCard, Visa, and PayPal said that they would suspend operations effective on March 5th, they said that. They said they would suspend operations where? Uh, in Russia on the 10th. Between announcing it on the 5th and it becoming into effect on the 10th, Russia had enough time to jump on union pay with China. That's March 10th. A few weeks later, March 28th, the Bank of Russia announces that it will it will set 5,000 rubles to one gram of gold. So they're putting their money on a gold standard. Mm, that's what it sounds like. They have, they, have the, they have the fifth largest gold reserve in the world. Mm. And by making a peg of 5,000 rubles to one gram of gold and giving themselves a window until June 30th to make this concrete, we may be witnessing a gold-backed Russian ruble. I should buy rubles is what I feel like right now. <laughs> now, I did a back-of-the-envelope calculation, and, and 5,000 rubles per gram, it's uh, about 20... How many grams are in an ounce? <laughs> it's like 16... Wait. Yes. How many no. grams in an ounce? 28... 28.3. 28.3 grams in an ounce. Right. So, you know, accounting for all of that, I figured it to be uh, that they would pay roughly 17,000 bucks in rubles, 5,000 rubles, 5,000 rubles to a gram, such and such amount of grams to an ounce of gold. Uh, at the current exchange rate, that costs in rubles around 1,700 bucks for an ounce of gold. The spot price for gold for an ounce right now is 1,900 bucks. So they are not going to turn the ruble into gold-backed immediately, but they are not far off the target. And what does that mean for the U.S. dollar? It means it's fucking toast, and there's another reason why. In late March, China said, hey, Saudi Arabia, do you mind if we start paying you in yuan, their Chinese sovereign currency? Yeah. Saudi Arabia said, hells yeah, we already send 60% of our oil to Asia, and the fact that, as I mentioned, 80% of the oil trade is denominated in dollars, that's the only reason the dollar still has its status as right. the currency reserve. So the yuan being a major player in the global oil trade and the gold-backed ruble are two daggers aimed right at the heart of the petrodollar. And then Putin set a deadline of March 31st. For all of the hostile nations I mentioned before, especially mm. the EU, to pay for all of their gas in rubles mm -hmm. as of April 1st moving forward. Nice. When they first made that demands, I saw a lot of uh, investment banker types say, well, that's absurd. The ruble has just plummeted. Well, why would anyone go off the dollar? Mm -hmm. Well... 
Guess what? The ruble was 84 to a dollar before the invasion, plummeted to 139 rubles to the dollar because of all the fuckery the West imposed on the ruble, and has now rebounded to 84. Exactly what it was before the invasion. Mm-hmm. Actually, 10 more. It was holding pretty steady um, at 73, 74 rubles to the dollar all last year. And now it's at 10 rubles more than it was. It was 80. I, I believe it was 84 before the invasion, went down to 139 and is mm-hmm. now back up to uh, 83. Yep. What you see there. And so that's it's recovered completely from mm-hmm. the pre-invasion losses. And the West thought it had all up its sleeve but it's only rebounded against the Western financial system, which is, without it even knowing it, has just committed a ritual seppuku to itself. <laughs> and with the yuan, a petro yuan emerging as a challenger to the petrodollar and a gold-backed ruble, two, that, these are two major threats to the primacy of the petrodollar that will destroy it definitively and destroy the Western American Western-led bloc. We always say West. That includes South Korea and Japan and Australia and Israel. That is the order that is going to crumble. So those are the two forces destroying the petrodollar and the 144 countries of the Belt and Road Initiative and the BRICS as a nucleus within them and Russia-China as a nucleus within them and the Shanghai Cooperation Organization as a nucleus within the BRICS are what will definitively, without a doubt, replace the American-led Western bloc, Western even though it always includes South Korea, Japan, and Australia. It's done. Wow. I, I can see that. I've My entire life, it's kind of just been like, oh, we have to stop China from taking over. We have to stop Russia from taking over. Mm-hmm. And now it's kind of like, no, it kind of sounds like they're doing it. Yeah. Here's my denouement. It would seem that the Belt and Road Initiative is a geopolitical master stroke, and it is. And China's Politburo are all engineers. And it is a perfect mechanism for China to get all of the energy, commodities, and raw materials that it can and exports for its consumer and industrial goods for decades to come. But it is a geopolitical masterstroke to exist within the bubble economy of the Earth's rape. That bubble economy is over. So they're they're fixing to take over the infrastructure of a dying infrastructure. They're going to create new infrastructure to allow them to completely run the table for the next 20 years as industrial civilization, as modern, complex civilization goes through a slow series of cascading shocks, very gradually leading to collapse. I have to post that video you sent me. I watched most of it, um, but I'm going to share it to our to our audience. It's called Breaking Down Collapse. 
Um, and episode. we're going to have to come back another time and talk about what's to be done about it, whether we're talking about what's to be done about the U.S. dollar failing or what's to be done about the Earth's resources running out or what's to be done about Russia and China running things. Um, but that's that's a whole nother conversation. I feel like we've just had an intro today right. on like. FYI, here's a very compelling case. Thank you for putting it together for us, boys, of like the the powers are shifting. It's definitely shifting. They've definitely they're not just sort of scrabbling around in the dark to try to take nice things from the US or whatever people think is going on. Like there are lots of other countries on the planet and they're kind of fucking done with the US being a global bully mm. and they're building their own things. Parallel, over over yeah, there. Global parallel institutions to make ours obsolete. It's definitely happening. The dollar is done and collapse is here. And I will leave you guys with a few final thoughts on collapse. There is a concept called peak oil, which was created by a petroleum geologist, Hubbard. It's sometimes called Hubbard's peak. That is the notion that there is in each oil field a peak amount that will be taken out. And after that, you will have a declining amount. And you can extrapolate from that to each country has its peak oil. And the world has peak oil. America had peak oil about 1973. Maybe it surged up again lately with fracking, but that was a last ditch. So it only gets more expensive to pull out oil now. Until it becomes so expensive that you have to expend more energy to get a barrel of oil out of the ground than you gain from trying to extract that barrel of oil. Mm. We are at that moment worldwide now. We have passed peak oil globally. That has been expanded by a scientist, Richard Heinberg, to a concept called peak everything. We are out of every resource Another thinker to look at is William Catton and his book, Overshoot. If you look at the population growth, it expanded coincident with when the industrial, it shot up exponentially, right when the industrial revolution happened, when we were able to start exploiting fossil fuels. Now that we are no longer able to exploit fossil fuels, and now that we have no more oil, no more resources, not to mention topsoil or water, et cetera, et cetera, fish, that we can no longer sustain 8 billion people or this complex industrial civilization. That's it's a whole show. Just, <laughs> it's just math. And that is just the tantalizing taste, taste tempter of why collapse is here. We don't have the carrying capacity and we don't have the resources. And we have too many people. I'll recommend folks, anybody listening to this now or in the future who might be like, what the fuck do we do? You can check out Dr. Chris Martinson, Martinson with an E. Yeah. Um, he has a website called Peak Prosperity, and he's also under Peak Prosperity on YouTube. And he's been discussing this concept of peak everything and economic collapse for over a decade now. And Energy, has, ecology, and economy. Yeah. And, and entropy. And yeah. entropy. And yeah. he's, 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 he does breakdowns like this, talking about how and why and what's happening. And then he has behind-the-scenes discussions with um, an ever-growing group of people who are trying to figure out, so what do we do about it to take care of our families? Yeah, and to the resources that you and I have already mentioned, I would add uh, Guy McPherson. 
He has a lot of material on YouTube about this, about the science behind it. Mm. That we're fucked. There's, there's no. It's happening. It's going to happen. Well, what I liked about the video that you sent, breaking down collapse, it really feels like a Sesame Street introduction to collapse. A guy yes. who has been studying it, and his friend who has only heard him talk about it sometimes at parties, right. and him trying to grok on what it means. So it's like. It's a really like, let's just, let me hold your hand and we're just going to walk through the park and casually just sort of, you know, get used to the idea, limber up and just get used to the idea that it ain't what you think it is and shit's going to change fast. But that's right. the thing that I liked was it wasn't going to change fast. It's, it's very like, slow. This is going to be a slow, this Decades. is a massive movement. So it's not going to be suddenly uh Hollywood like disaster porn, 24 not, hour collapse. Not it's, Mad Max. It's a no. slow, gradual. So it gives you, you know, I think people who are responsive beings opportunities to find their place within collapse to have the best time in a time that isn't the best. This makes me want to move on to a compound with my siblings and start a garden. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> not in Montana. Well, I think that's. That's realistic. Uh, for me, there's two ways to survive the slow collapse. And it's to make yourself indispensable in a peasant country, which is why I tried to start a surf business in India and was there for five months. <laughs> but it's also to be an integral part of a community that has a tradition, a tradition of barter and gift exchange and working together that mm. can radically take decentralized radical control of its own water, food, sewage, power, security, and culture by itself. A person alone can't do it. A family on a homestead can't do it. But a village or a bioregion or a watershed can. And that's why I think as the nation state itself collapses, that that's why bioregions, anarchist bioregions and watersheds dedicated to mutual aid that can control their own water, food, sewage, power, security, culture, and entertainment by themselves will do fine, which is why I will probably be returning to the big island. Mm. Yes. Not much population density there. No, but there are communities there that 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 do have all of those traditions and do have the capability to do that. Um, I think we're going to have to wrap it up because yeah. we're not going to do it all in one show. Unfortunately, this was a bit of a this was a bit As of as you said a poo poo platter a poo poo platter <laughs> yeah p u p u. I want to uh, send my, like, you're all, anybody who stuck through this interview because of the breaking up, you're yes. my hero. Heroes. I enjoyed the conversation, and hopefully we can find a way to make it more fluid in the future. You'll have uh, to come visit again, I think. Oh, yeah, you just have to come come and come sit in the studio itself. But we want to have you on the show more often. Work. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Well, um, thank you, boys. Okay, we can hear you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think yeah. we handled it pretty admirably, honestly. No, I think it's a lot of great information. Looking forward to um, teasing it out as we go. And the conversation can continue in the comments. 
Appreciate you, boys. Thank you. Thank you for visiting Thank our you, outpost in the borderlands. Post-Orthodoxy is a project of Sevier Studios. We host ongoing, interactive conversations centered around cognitive liberty, and you can join in by catching one of our live streams on Facebook, YouTube, or Twitch. You can also catch each conversation after the fact as a podcast by searching for Post-Orthodoxy wherever podcasts are found. If you take value from the work we are doing and the community we are building together, Facebook, YouTube, Twitch, Twitter, Instagram, and or Substack. Our post-Orthodoxy theme music was composed by Frank Pascal, and a special thanks goes to our voice actors, Amelia, Colin, Zbo, Rosie, Gabo, Vicky, Mokai, and Tony. Thanks for playing. <laughs> What's outside your reality bubble? I think I dribbled a bit, that last one.